Thank you, worship team, as always. Welcome home, family. We're so glad to see everyone here with us this morning as we worship our Heavenly Father. We are continuing our series through the book of Titus. We're finishing up to actually uh, Titus chapter 1. If you want to flip there in your Bibles and prepare, but no worries because when we get there, it's also going to be on the screen. But we're so excited to be in this series as we see what God has to say to us through His Word. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time in which we can come before you, come before you together, and that we can open up your Word and read it and understand it, and that you can move in our lives to apply it. Lord, I hope that, and I pray for this time, that you teach us what we need to be taught, that you show us what we need to be shown, that you grow us in the ways we need to grow, that you can speak through my words, however meager they might be, so that we can be your people as we're supposed to be your people. Lord, I just pray that this comes to life in our hearts and our minds as we seek to see you and know you more. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is value in confrontation. Many of us don't like confrontation. You might be like me. I don't like confrontation. I don't like to make us stink about it, but it can make you nervous. It can make us anxious, but there's value in confrontation. There could be small value, just like, hey, you have to confront maybe a waitress because they got your order wrong, and then you get your order right, right? There's value even in small confrontation. But there's there's value also in bigger confrontation. Maybe when a teacher has to confront a student about how they're not not right, and so actually they grow and they learn more. Our parent corrects their child and they become better behaved or they become better men of society. There's value in confrontation. Sometimes it's needed to actually confront someone when they're wrong so they can get back on track. Actually, part of ministry involves confrontation. Part of loving people actually involves confrontation confrontation as we love them because we see them maybe get off track and we want them to get back on track and so we have to confront them in a loving way part of the christian community in fact is confrontation that when we see a brother or sister when they wander away from the truth that is the community's job to help steer them back onto what is truth have to steer them back on to god's word because when we're talking about confrontation within the Christian community, we're, we believe we live by a standard, and the standard is God's Word, that He makes that clear to us. And we even see that in Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That Scripture is useful in confronting people when they're wrong and bringing them back to the truth so they can apply it to their lives and actually follow God how he would have them live. And when we come to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we see actually Paul talk about the ministry of confrontation, or you could say even the ministry of rebuking. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're not, it's going to be on the screen. And we're going to read what he has to say here. And remember, this last week we are talking about the qualifications for elders and how it ended with the elder must be able to teach and actually be able to give sound instruction so that people, uh, so they can also rebuke those who contradict it. And so this is almost a natural outflow of that same thought when Paul says this. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When I read that, just distill it, I would argue the summation of it is rebuke false teaching to restore the lost and protect the family. That's really what Paul is saying here, is that there's a job at, there's a job given to leaders of the church and to the church as whole, and this job is actually to protect the family from falsehood. The job is to actually restore people who've wandered away. And how you do that is that you rebuke them, that you care enough about them, that you actually stand in front of them and say, we love you, and you're going away that is not good, going away that leads away from God, going away that leads to death and destruction, and we we want you to come back. We want you to see the truth. And so you rebuke them with the word, showing that they're, how they're living, how they're thinking is contrary to what God wants in their life. That we rebuke false teaching to restore the lost and protect the family. I love the, the fact that, um, I don't love this actually. I don't know why I said I love it. But actually an uncomfortable part of a pastor's job is that this happens that you have to look at someone who you love and lovingly say you're living contrary to what the Word says and then ask them to consider that and come back to the truth. The, the great reformer John Calvin has this great quote when he says the pastor should have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for driving away the wolves. And that a minister... Even I would argue, even the whole church as a large community should have that loving voice when they gather together and we love each other well. But when someone is leading people astray, you get a little bit more stern and declare the truth because rebuke false teaching to restore the lost and protect the family. And as we read this, we see Paul kind of unpacked who these people are who are leading people astray. And so he starts by describing them that there's these. There's many who are, and he gives these three descriptive words about who they are, and it's actually helpful probably to look at them one at a time. He first describes them as insubordinate. Other translations say rebellious. These are people who are throwing off authority and living their own way, going their own way. When uh, we read that, you you might chafe at it under a little bit because we are strong and independent and we like to think how we want to think, and we don't really like authority. And, and so we read that and like say, well, what's wrong with people going their own way or thinking their own thoughts? What's wrong with doing that? But what Paul is making the point is that these are people who are rebellious. They're not listening to those who they should listen to. These are people who are refusing to listen to the collective wisdom of the church. People who are throwing off the teaching of the apostles. People who are wanting to do their own thing just because they want to do their own thing. And so they're rebellious. They're not listening to those they should listen to, and they're listening to those they shouldn't listen to. 
they're, they're being led astray. I can't help but think of this phenomenon that I'm seeing on the interweb, a wonderful place of YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook. You see all these videos of people who hear something, and they hear this, voice, this one person say it, and they take it as a truth, and they kind of spread it along, and it kind of spreads like uh, gangrene, and they don't check it, and they don't verify it, but they just keep on passing it along because they want to listen to all these other voices rather than listening to voices they should listen to it. If you were in, in the prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago, I went on a rant because I was watching a video and this lady was talking about her Bible and she listened to all this video that kind of undermined her faith in the Bible because it was talking about how verses might be missing from her modern translation. And she was really perturbed by this. And so I did something I shouldn't have done and almost never do is I replied to that video. I actually made a comment on the internet. I entered those dangerous waters. And I laid out a well, well articulated, in my opinion, the defense of the scholarship of how the Bible comes to us. And, and, like, and like, this is the facts, and like you're being a later, like I didn't even say you're being led astray, but these are just the facts. And then someone replied to my comment with just a simple, says you. And my, my, my head exploded. Because it's like, no, not says me. This was not a debatable thing. This was just... What scholarship says is facts. But yet people are listening to these videos and they take these little things and they hear them and they want to spread them and they go, oh, that, that person that, that, that's saying this video must know a lot because they probably watched a couple of videos too, right? And yet they refuse to listen to people who love them, who have given their life to study for them so that they can grow in the truth. And so they're rebellious. And they're throwing off the authoritative voices in their life and running to listen to other things. And it leaves people in the same way. But they're not just rebellious or insubordinate. They're empty talkers, Paul says. They're not saying anything of substance. Because what they say has no weight. What they say is this empty air. What they say seems like, a lot of times, just they're making it up as they go along. It has no power to change lives. It has no power to correct the needs we have. It does not address the issues we have in our life. It's empty. They're empty talkers. I love how one commentator called them cotton candy preachers. These are people who seem to be saying something that has a lot of substance, substance, just like cotton candy, but the minute you try to digest it, it dissolves away because it's empty. These are people who turn things into motivational speeches, things that make people feel good for the momentary things, they don't, but they don't address the things that we need them to address. They're empty of power, empty of truth, because they're empty of the Word of God. And finally, Paul describes these people not just as insubordinate or empty talkers, but these people are deceivers. They're spreading lies. They're spreading untruths. Maybe they're convicted, convincing themselves of their truths, but if they are, they're deluded and they're not taking time to see the truth or even examine the truth. They should know better or they should at least know who they should go to and listen to to know better, but yet they have already ditched authority and so they are deceivers. They're leading people in things that are not true. They're teaching things that are perverting the truth. They're holding forth things that are contrary to the truth. 
And a lot of us might hear that and they say, well, what's the big deal? What's true for them is fine. What's true for me is okay. And we can just go our separate ways. And how contrary to the word of God is that thought. It sounds really great in our society because it makes no waves and people can just live how they want and we don't have to interact with anyone else or anyone else's beliefs. But the fact is the Bible holds forth that there is a truth. There is a truth and he is, his name is Jesus Christ. There's a truth that is his word and that we stand on that and things that contradict it, things that try to pervert it are not truth. There actually is truth, things that correspond to this reality that we need to recognize and understand and things that go against it are what we would say are not truth. These are things spread by people who are deceivers, leading people in ways that, they, that are not true, leading people in ways that are going to lead to destruction because it leads away from the one who is truth, Jesus Christ. And to, they, to them, they need to be refuted. They need to be confronted with that untruth they are spreading. Because the result of this, Paul says, is that they're upsetting families. Now, whether this line means that they whole families within the Christian community were believing something false and going away and causing division within the church, or whether this means that there's some members of a certain family were following a wrong belief and so that made for a lot of tense dinner conversations as the families were being divided, either way, it's talking about the vision, that untruth, this deceiving way, these empty talkers, these rebellious leaders were now causing divisions within the family. It was resulting in a, a uh, strife within the Christian community that should not be there as people were arguing over these things, that the people were being led astray. And so Paul says, what should you do? They must be silenced. He wasn't pulling any punches here. He says, you don't believe me. Let them speak. Again, that sounds so extreme in our ears. Because we're Americans, we value freedom of speech, and we, we should actually protect in our, in our culture the, the freedom that people have to say what they want, even if we don't agree with it. But when it comes to the church, Paul is saying church leaders, the church, Christian community should care enough about each other that you don't let anything that can lead people astray come into that community. You don't let false teachers even get a foothold, and so they must be silenced. We recognize that, that if you had a child who was being led astray by something, and you can see how someone's lying to them and is going to lead them astray to, to destruction or to hardship, any good parent would silence that fool and say, you cannot speak those lies anymore. That we know that there comes around when, when, when people are spreading lies that causes harm and deception and destruction in people's lives, they should stop talking and you should silence them. And how much more so when you're talking about someone's relationship with God and how they view him when people creep in and start spreading things that harm that, confuse someone. They have to be silent. They have to be silenced. Why? Because we're called to rebuke false teaching, to restore the lost and protect the family. Because these people are not just out at, not just people who think they know what's right. Paul makes it very, very clear that they're motivated by different things than the spread of the truth or the proclaiming of the gospel. He talks about, first of all, in verse 11, that these people are teaching for shameful gain. 
These are leaders who have come into the church and they're teaching it some, something that's contrary to truth. Why? Because they're going to get something out of it. It could be money, it could be position, it could be fame, power, control, something. But they're getting something out of it when they're proclaiming this not truth. They're looking out for themselves. I love how Thomas Brooks, who's, who's a, uh, a Puritan, he uh, wrote this book, and he, in, this, in this little like, section he talks about this, uh, these false teachers and, their, and how they're looking out for themselves, and he has this great line. He says, false teachers make merchandise of their followers. I love that because it's so true. That people who are teaching falsehoods, they're out for themselves, out for gain. And so what they do when they gain followers, they turn them into merchandise. These people are here now for their own benefit. And they're going to reap some reward because people listen to them. They're out for shameful gain. We can look around, we see that happening all the time. We can see people taking the name of Christ and perverting it for shameful gain. We see people who are preaching a contrary gospel, untruth, such as the prosperity gospel, this, this idea that if you, you know, give a dollar to your church, you're going to get $100 back. back. I can't find a verse that says that, but they promote this. Or these prosperity uh, preachers who trick poor widows into giving all their money to the church so they can buy a bigger jet. Or these people who teach that if you just have enough faith, if you can just have enough faith and believe hard enough, then God's going to bless you with health, wealth, and happiness. And they're perverting the truth of the gospel to where it's not a gospel at all. It's no longer good news of Jesus Christ saving you, but now it's this, it's this bad advice about how you got to get your life together. And they're perverting that, and it harms people, and they do it. Why? So they can have shameful gain. They can build a bigger church. They can have a bigger jet. They can get the you know, good TV slot on their, on their program. They're doing it for their own benefit. These false teachers are not just doing it for shame and gain, but they're out for themselves. They're serving themselves, making themselves feel better. Which is why Paul uses this, this quotation from a local writer where he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That seems like an overstatement. But Paul's not talking about the church at large that happens to be in Crete. He's, but he applies it to these false teachers by saying, this testimony is true. That these people I'm talking about, these insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, these people who are out for shameful gain, these are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They're out for what makes them feel good. They are people trying to please their own appetites. They're following the God of their stomach. They want to just live how they want to live and do what they want to do. And those people who follow them, end up being just like them. Falling away contrary to the Word of God. Looking out for themselves and whatever makes them feel good. There are people even nowadays who are teaching the exact same thing. Teaching people that they should actually just be encouraged to roll, to run into full self sin. Why? Because if it makes you feel good, then it's good. They're encouraging people to run into ways of living, ways of thinking that are contrary to the Word of God, especially said, why? Just because if it, hey, if it works for you, it works for you. People say, well, what's wrong with that? If it makes people happy, why should we criticize that? Because it's based on a lie. It's based on a wrong view of the world. It's based on a lie that is going to lead these people into death and destruction. It's based on a lie that's man-centric, not Christ-centric. It's based on a lie that's based that we can do stuff and that, and, that, and that we get what we want and that we're the center of the universe. 
It's based on this lie that this momentary happiness that they're running towards is somehow going to fulfill them when it's going to be fleeting and then not going to last forever. And you, you miss out on actually seeing the one who made you and designed you to have a relationship with him. And so it, that's why we should say this. We should not run towards these things because they're just momentary. They're just things of the world and we should look actually to the one who made us to have a relationship with himself. But we so easily get caught up in being lured astray by these fleeting pleasures. We can admit that. In this, uh, Thomas Brooks, in the same book I was reading, he talks about these ploys that Satan uses to lead us astray. And one of the first ploys he says is to present the bait and hide the hook. And we too often are short-memoried fish who see that bait and find it so tempting that we forget there's a hook that lies in that leads to destruction, harm, trouble in how we relate to who God is. And Paul says, hey, these are the people who are following the Jewish myths or they're following the commands of people who don't know the truth. And he's giving, he's giving that example. These are the people of the circumcision party. These are the people who are following this idea that if you follow the laws of God, you're good. These are people who are following after Paul and teaching Christians, hey, you first have to become Jewish and follow all the laws and regulations of the Jewish community before you can become a Christian. And Paul is refuting these people, and he does that through several books, but he's talking about these are the example of people who are following these man-made myths, these ideas that somehow if you do something, if you get your life together, if you can check it off a box, if you follow these rules, you'll be good, you'll be golden, you'll be in. And Paul says, that is wrong because you'll never do it good enough. You'll never do it perfect enough and you'll be doomed if you try to do it on your own effort. And what you need is you realize that Christ saves you in spite of your effort. Christ saves you in spite of your sin. That when he looks upon you when you want nothing to do with him, he saves you and he draws you to him. And that is the glorious news of the gospel that he saves us. Not from our own effort. Not from our own doing and deeds. But he saves us and brings us into his family. And Paul says, no, we should not listen to these false teachers who promote these commands of people who are not even know, don't even know God. But we should promote the truth of who Christ is. And again, we can just look around and we see examples of the same thing happening all the time. For there are books that hit the bestseller list that are basically just self-help books who carry the message, get your life in order, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, but they smear some Christian knees on it and they become a huge success throughout the church. But they're preaching something that is different than the gospel. For the gospel is not do better. The gospel is look to Christ who has done it all and trust in him. And Paul says, these people... What do we do to them? We rebuke them sharply. We confront them. We rebuke them. Ideas against the gospel, we rebuke them. We say, that is not true. That does not align with what the Word of God says, and that cannot stand and hear. And we see that again and again through the Bible, the New Testament, talking about rebuking people or take, uh, going against these philosophies that are contrary to the Word. We see in Colossians 2.8 when it says, See to that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Or 2 Corinthians 10.5, which says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, as speaking of the same thing as spoken here in Titus, there's a, there's a ministry of confrontation, of rebuking, and we do this to people who are going off track. Why? As Paul says, we do it for restoration. He says, we're not just rebuking people to win the debate. We're not just doing it to prove that we're right and they're wrong. We're not even doing it to show that Christianity is true and what they're believing is false. So much as we're doing it, as Paul says, that they may be sound in faith. That we rebuke people. Why? That those people who believe in Christ can be corrected when they start to lean astray. And they can be sound in faith. And those people who are lost and don't know the truth can be confronted with the truth and have to come to a decision what is true and who they are going to follow. Rebuke because rebuking corrects mistakes. The same reason any good teacher would correct a, a mistake on Johnny's math test so that he can actually know what is true and learn from it and grow from it. Same way any good parent corrects behavior so that little Susie can actually be a civilized human in society. That correction is for the benefit of the person. It restores them. It brings them back to what is true. And that's what we're called to do with God's people. All the Christian community is called to do that. That we rebuke false teaching to restore the lost and to protect the family. And Paul finishes by talking about these people. They're not just leading people astray, but their lifestyle does not meet or match what they proclaim. They're proclaiming one thing and living another way. We see this in, starting in verse 15, he starts with this proverbial statement, to the pure all things are pure. And so he's basically saying, when you dive into it, that the pure, those who believe in Christ, because the only purity, true purity we can have, is if we believe in Christ and we are washed in his purity. And so for those who believe in Christ, how we live, what flows out of our life is going to be pure, because our foundation, our core, is centered and immersed in Jesus Christ. And so we trust that and believe that. Commentators says purity that counts only comes through faith in Christ. And that, uh, John MacArthur, a pastor, says, when a person is pure in heart and mind, his perspective on all things are pure, and that inner purity produces outer purity. What Paul is doing here with this proverbial statement is he's actually linking, again, what we believe with how we live. He's linking, linking what goes on inside a person's heart with what comes out of their mouth and how they live in life. The same thing Jesus did back in Mark 7 when he talks about how what comes out of us defiles us, not what we take in. And so this idea that what we believe is linked expressly with how we live, for how we act, for how we treat one another. And Paul says, these leaders who seek to proclaim the gospel or seek to proclaim God have a disconnect in their life. That they proclaim one thing, but their life preaches something completely different. That they proclaim to the love of God or the authority of Scripture, but how they live shows that they don't believe in God and they don't live under the authority of Scripture. And he says there's this disconnect there in their lives. And when we read that, if you're like me, it's immediately like, oh, that's a warning to all of us. How easy it is to proclaim one thing and live out and act something different. So it's a warning us that what we speak must be aligned with what we 
live, how we act should be aligned with what we believe. Now, I'm not talking about those people who are struggling with sin and fighting it, but yet they fell and messed up, and that's all of us. All of us, Christians who proclaim the gospel and seek to share the gospel, we mess up, we fail, we, we stumble, we, we don't think, do the things we're supposed to, we do the things we're not supposed to, we mess up. But that's a Christian life. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, about how the things he desires to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. That's the struggle of the Christian life, that we are fighting to follow God with all of our means because the Holy Spirit's empowering us and changes us to do so. And if that struggle is there, if you have that struggle, congrats, you're a Christian. And you're living like you're supposed to because you're supposed to fight to follow God. Some people might struggle and say, well, that doesn't that make me a hypocrite? I'm proclaiming one thing, but I'm struggling with that. No, that's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who proclaims one thing and without any problem goes and lives another way, which is what these false teachers are. Proclaiming one thing and yet going without any qualms and living a different way. There's a disconnect in their life and they need to be brought back into alignment, which is what rebuking does. It realigns people, realigns a life into what is proclaimed they believe. Have to be realigned. You know, I have, a, I have a printer back in my office that every time I replace the ink cartridge, it prints out a test page and I have to scan it to see if it needs to be realigned because this by life and being a printer, I guess, it has a hard life. And it seems to do this right when I'm trying to print something really fast for the last moment. I have to, you know, realign itself to make sure it's printing cleanly because it can get out of alignment. In our lives, how we live, I think, are the same way. Just by life, we're bumping up against people in the world, living a life that can be hard, we can get out of alignment because we take our eyes off of God, we take our eyes off the Word, and we start drifting with the world. And again, the Word brings us back to alignment. It brings us back to what is true, and the community is supposed to come around us and bring us back into alignment with God's Word. And they do that because they have to, by confronting us, by rebuking those people who need to be brought back. Rebuke false teaching to restore the loss and protect the family. So what does this mean for us, though? How do we apply that to our lives right now? How can you take this home? And I'll just offer this, is that we need to value loving rebuke. It seems so weird. No one likes to be rebuked, but we need to value it. And so that means for yourself that you need to actually open yourself up for accountability. So easy in our modern day to just live by yourself. We can be like hamsters that go and we live in this one place and we scurry home and we go inside and we don't know anyone else outside our small little circle, but we need to open ourselves up to accountability. Whether it was in a small group or a Bible study or a discipleship group, you find someone to actually can speak truth with love into your life, that you open yourself up to that because you know the value of it. You know that you need it. And then you take the next big step that you're actually brave enough to hold others accountable. That you love someone enough to actually speak the truth of love into your life and say, hey, I love you and I see you going away. That's not true. That's contrary to belief. And I want to apply the word and see for you to see the truth and to come back in the light, alignment. That we all need friends who care more about our relationship with God than our relationship with them. That they're willing actually to put their relationship with us on the line so that we can have a better, more aligned relationship with God. And we need to be open to that. And then we need this in our leaders as well. 
The Christian community needs this in their leaders, that we need leaders who have love and gentleness when addressing faults, who love people well enough to actually take that step to address faults or ways they've gone astray. That we expect this of our leaders. We actually expect leaders to do this. It's something that we should expect them to do in the, in the, in the, in the duties of leading the church well. And we just don't expect it, but we accept it as well. That when we hear words of rebuke from people who love us, who have proved that they care for us, who we know they want what's best for us, we accept it with love because we know they come from love. That those words come from love. But finally, we open ourselves to accountability to ourselves and to all who hear that Christ forgives us, that Christ saves us, that Christ is going to bring us home, that he does it all for us. We follow him. We believe in that God. We believe in what that, that rebuking points to God. I just want to end with a quote by Charles Spurgeon that proverbial statement that Paul makes in this passage and says this. Provided we are obliged to come to the conclusion that our minds are not pure, we, not, we need not end there. For there are means by which they are made so. Glory be to God. If my mind and conscience are defiled, they may not always be so. There is cleansing. I cannot affect it for myself, nor can any outward forms do it. But God has set forth Christ to be a Savior. And he shall save his people from their sins, from their sinfulness too. And whoever believes in Christ Jesus, that is, trust in him, there is already in him the beginning of purity. God, the Holy Spirit, will give him more and more of the likeness of Christ. For he that believes shall be saved from sin, from indwelling sin, from all sin, from the power of sin, as well as the guilt of it. Faith will cleanse him, applying again the precious blood and the water which flows from the side of Christ. Faith will. By the Holy Spirit's power, become a cleansing as well as a saving grace. God grant to us, and may we all be among the pure, unto whom all things shall be pure. When we rebuke someone in love, when we accept rebuking in love, we preach to the truth of the gospel that Christ brings us back to Him, that Christ saves us and is not our Father, thank you so much for your work. 
a word that we can read, we can understand, we can grow from. Your word that can confront us with our with uh, the ways we go go astray. Confront us with the ways in which we do not know the truth. Lord, I just pray that we can be your people in all that we do. I pray that we can be open to accountability and be open to leaders holding us accountable. And that we can hold each other accountable. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.